Welcome to Madang. Today I have Reverend Melissa Flora Bixler here to discuss her work at the Larsh community. She will also discuss her latest book, How to Have an Enemy. It's a fabulous conversation. Please stay tuned. The Buddhist Su Chi Foundation is a volunteer-based global organization with missions in charity, medicine, education, and humanist culture. The foundation provides community and social services, national and international disaster relief, medical and charitable assistance, education, environmental protection, and a bone marrow donor registry promoting humanistic values and community volunteerism. Su Chi is currently sending emergency aid to eight Asian countries, India, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Laos, and Taiwan providing communities with life-saving medical equipment and supplies to help them overcome the COVID-19 pandemic. To find out more and to donate, please visit our website at www.suchi.us slash coronavirus. Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life. She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at Mandy Ford Art, and visit her shop at mandyfordart.com. FACE serves as the bridge between the Asian American community and the greater community at large by connecting and creating private and public collaboration, maximizing capacities of faith-based organizations and other community nonprofits, increasing access to resources and funds, and assisting low-income individuals while revitalizing local neighborhoods. We equip faith leaders to be welcomed, influential, and contributing stakeholders by expanding their impact in the greater community. Join us in supporting our work by donating at www.facela.org. For sponsorship inquiries, please contact madangpodcast at gmail.com. This is Madang, an outdoor living room for guests to share their experiences and their work. I invite you to come in and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. Today I have a very special guest. I have Reverend Melissa Flora Wixler, who is a pastor of Raleigh Mennonite Church and a graduate of Duke University and Princeton Theological Seminary. She is a chair of Larsh, North Carolina and a steering committee in broad-based organizing in her county. She writes for various places like Sojourners, Faith and Leadership and Anabaptist Vision. And she is author of a couple books. And today I'm so excited to have her to discuss um, her forthcoming book, How to Have an Enemy, which will be released July 20th. And I was um, privileged to endorse her book. And one of the endorsers wrote, this is a book that doesn't let readers off easily, that disturbs and provokes much like the Gospels. And that was from Kea um, Gakes. So it's such a pleasure to have you on, Madan, on this special episode to discuss your forthcoming book, How to Have an Enemy. So thank you for making the time to be here. It's so exciting to meet you again on Zoom. So thank you. Uh, before we get into the book, can you share a little bit about um, your work as a chair Larsh in North Carolina? Yeah, it's great to be here and yeah, happy to talk a little bit about Larsh. Um, for those of you who are uh, maybe don't know a lot about Larsh, um, most of the most of our sort of reference point, I think, in the church is uh, Henry Nowen, who left um, Harvard Divinity School, where he was a professor to become the sort of living in in, uh, in resident priest at Larsh Daybreak in Toronto. And um 
but there are actually large communities all over the world. Um, there's a large community in the West Bank, in Palestine, and um, in there's large communities in South America, all over the U.S. And I lived in a large community in Portland, Oregon, um, right out of my graduate after graduating from Duke. And I thought it would be one of those short-term sort of volunteer experiences, and Larsh just really got into my heart. Um, it's a community for people with and without intellectual disabilities who share the rhythms of daily life together and uh, discover one another's gifts along the way. And uh, that just that experience really changed something in me. And when I moved to North Carolina, there were other former assistants, um, people like me who share life with people with intellectual disabilities, um, who wanted to see a community in our area. And we've been working for seven years now to found a new home in Larch, North Carolina. Wow, that is so interesting. You know, I used to live in Toronto before I moved to the States. And uh, that large community wasn't that far from where I lived. Uh, But I always regret that I had friends who went um, to visit and, and to do volunteer and I never got to and I knew it would be a big uh, regret for me for a long time so it still is in my heart because that was the original community um, just in Richmond uh, Hill and just north of Toronto so that's been a big regret and so hopefully um, I may be able to visit it one day when I visit my family uh, up in Toronto. So thank you for the work that you do. Um, Are there things that people in your community or around the world can do to help? Because you're so involved in it. I think it's an important uh, ministry. So if there's other things for our listeners, how they can get involved, can you share that? Sure. You know, I I think like... um... A lot of communities, especially intentional communities, Larsh has been profoundly impacted by the pandemic. Uh, so especially our international communities um, have have struggled to continue to be able to pay assistance and um, have had a lot of losses. These are um, people who live in Larsh who call this their permanent home are often people who are very physically fragile. Um, and so going to Larsh USA um, or Larsh International, there are ways to contribute funds to um, the international projects. Um, but there's also, it's great to just look up what your local Larsh community is. And uh, if you have one near you, um, one of the things we say about Larsh is it's a sign of hope for our communities. It's not just to home, but it's, um, we host prayer nights and community celebrations and you can bring dinner or share dinner. And, um, and maybe even some listeners are thinking, wow, I, I would love to see a community like that in my area. And, um, Larsh USA would love to support you as they supported us and, and helping to, um, bring Larsh to life in other places. Wow. So people can volunteer and people can donate. And you yourself lived in a large community. So what was your capacity when you lived in that community? And how was it to live in that community? Yeah, so I was an assistant in Portland, and that meant that with um, two other assistants, um, people who supported the core members, the people who with disabilities sort of make up the center of Larsh life. Um, one thing that's sort of unique about Larsh is that uh, a lot of the experience of people with profound intellectual disabilities is that they get moved around a lot. Um, they'll be in a group home that closes and going to get go maybe go to an institutional setting but Larsh is really a community for life um we we this becomes your family your this is your home this is the place where you live um and so I uh, lived with core members many of them who are still there um and uh assistants some are long-term some are short-term um and we uh, do the things that we all do with life we make breakfast together and then we go to our jobs if we have them. Um, my job was just to be present to our core members, but um, uh, our friend Adam would go off to the job that he worked um, at a factory and um, we would take everybody to work and then have a l- assistants would have a little time off for ourselves. And then we would welcome everybody home and we would have lunch together and we would go for walks and go to the park and go to baseball games. And um, just the, I think the, the things that perhaps people who 
are temporarily able-bodied like you and me um, may take for granted about just the regular flourishing of ordinary life in relationships and friendships and being chosen by another person for friendship. Um, so um, while L'Arche is incredibly ordinary, though for people who don't have access to the things that I think a lot of us take for granted, um, the ordinary is pretty extraordinary in L'Arche. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. I, I, I admire Henry Nowen for um, kind of giving up his position and, and to start this. And, you know, he really led the way for how others can build community because I think as Christians and especially during the pandemic, it's so hard to find community when we cannot physically meet one another and things are just online. So I'm just so excited that there are these kind of communities that people can actually come to live and belong and, and volunteer. So thank you for sharing about Larish and I hope those who are interested can just uh, Google Larsh or I follow you on Twitter or on social media because you do share um, some of the information uh, on your social media account. So thank you for sharing that. And, and I hope listeners will get interested to kind of um, see what they can do to be part of this beautiful community or contribute in different ways. So thank you so much, Melissa, for sharing that. Now, as we move to your book, I don't know if you have a copy of your book yet. I, do you have a copy? Don't, but oh, I don't. Okay, but we've seen covers and the pictures, and I'm I can't wait to get a copy of your book because I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what led you to to write this book. So if you can just share with us, because the topic how to have an enemy is such a strange topic to me, at least personally, and it may be to others. So share with us what led you to write this particular book. Yeah, well, I think you know. I don't know if this is your experience with writing too, but I really books for me are, and any writing assignment really is, you know, what is a question that's sort of in the air for me that I haven't quite been able to get my uh, myself around the answer to that question, and I think oh, well, maybe other people would like to come along with me <laughs> as we look at this question together, and you know, I think we're all. So we're emerging from this time of, I think, multiple corporate and collective traumas. Um, for for many of us, I, I, you know, obviously the pandemic is is a big one. But I but I think the Trump administration has also been a a, a significant collective trauma, especially for those of us who are uh, either in lives of solidarity with, with people who were profoundly affected or are people who were affected by the, by the Trump administration policies. And so there's this just felt like this very interesting conversation that was happening in the church around this time, um, where perhaps we had a more sort of sense of visceral enmity I don't want to say that, that, you know, I think these, these enmities have always been here, but one of the things that the Trump administration really made possible was to let, to, was to sort of take the brakes off of respectability, right? We, we, all of a sudden, these things that people said in, in corners or locker rooms, right? All of a sudden were, they gave, there was permission to sort of let these be aired out in public and, and to become a part of the sort of corporate conversation. Um, and that was, there was a lot of trauma to that. Um, and so it was interesting to hear how the church was interacting with the sort of the vis, the visceralness of that enmity in this moment. Um, I think in, in, in a way that is distinct, at least in my lifetime. Um, and so I really wanted to grapple with that question um, that comes from the teaching, one of these teachings at the heart of, of what are what we believe, which is love your enemies. Right. And so the, the next question is, who is my enemy? Right. <laughs> if you're going to love your enemy, you have to know who your enemy is. And then the next question after that is, once you know who they are, how do you do it well? 
Um, and so those That's are really so interesting. Yeah, because of how to have an enemy. I th always thought, you know what, I want to get rid of my enemy. So I don't want to have an enemy. So that but you twist it around. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually interested when you said, uh, you know, Trump kind of gave permission to do all these things. And I think that has been such a huge problem and trauma for all of us um, who are receiving on the receiving end. And so I'm just grateful for you. You know, I forgot to mention you are an activist. I, I was meaning to say that in the biography. Um, and so for you to speak up and then for this book, I think it's so, um, it's so helpful for so many of us who are struggling uh, with what do we do with the enemy and how do we live with the enemy in our midst. So I'm so grateful. And I always wanted to ask you, you have three children and they're quite young and you have this church, you're doing large and you write for so many different places. Like I mentioned Sojourners and Faith and Leadership. How did you find the time to write this book when you got three little kids too? <laughs> Um, I, you know, I, I remember hearing a while ago, I forget which writer said this, but this sense of like, you write because you have to right? like that writing, it can also be, um, for people who are, I think do have sort of a vocational call to writing, writing really is, um, it's like you, like kind of like you write your way out of, out of the, out of the trauma that you're going through. Like, this is how, this is how you, like some people run, some people, you know, cook, some people write. And this is sort of the way that you make sense of the world. Um, and so for me, especially right now, I, I, I needed something that, that a project that really grounded me to how do I make sense of what, of what feels like a, just a totally senseless situation happening around us. And, and a, what, what has often over and over again, felt like a, a, a fair, a, a pretty dismal response from the church to that moment. Um, and so for me that it just, it just was so helpful to have something to return to like a, a question to really like dig deeply into in this moment. Yeah. Well, thank you for doing it because, and it's not like when you, when people get the book, so be uh, released next month, it is a lot of research that you did for the book. It's not like, oh, I'm going to work myself out of this trauma and just write about it. It's you brought in theologians, you brought in scripture, you brought in some history. There was a lot of work involved in writing this particular book. So I'm very grateful for that. Um, you've um, quoted um, James Cone and, you know, such an important theologian for our uh, time today. And um, you said that he helped you shift um, to a theology of two orders. It's the order of sin and death and the order of liberation and redemption. So if you can just elaborate a bit on that and what it means to you to quote Cone and just how it fits into your whole book. Well, Cone has been a has been an influential theologian for me for a long time, but I think especially um, talk a little bit in the book about the work with um, the Wake County Community Remembrance Project and that works to memorialize the uh, the the lynchings of black people in North Carolina and there's these projects around the country, but the cross and the lynching tree was a especially significant to me in um, helping to, to, to sort of draw me back to Cone and some of the, and then reading black liberation again. Um, it just, this felt he's always a, he's a, a prescient thinker, right? He's, it's like his words continue to sort of speak to the, the historical moment that seems to get, repeat itself over and over again. Um, and so especially these questions that he was willing to ask um, that, and the theology he was willing to put out with, that just did not include the anxieties that are, are so predominant in, in, the, in the majority white church in denomination that I'm a part of, that many of us are a part of. Um, and so the, just the clarity and incisiveness um, of his thoughts that I think, I don't know if you feel this way, just continue to speak again and again into the sort of, um, the anxiety of white identity politics that 
that I think slips its way into the majority white church. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree with you. He was so prophetic because, you know, he started writing in the 60s and 70s and he continued till he died. And um, they're published by Orbis Books. And one of them uh, was um, published after his death. So I think, you know, he, he was very prophetic. He was speaking and addressing so many of the issues that we're dealing with still today. So I think it's very relevant. And I was so pleased that you were quoting him and some other Black theologians that we can get into later. So uh, I'm just thankful um, that you were able to bring in the scholarship. You also brought in Kimberly Crenshaw, and I used Kimberly Crenshaw for my co-written book, uh, Intersectional Theology. So can you share some, uh, because you brought her in, so can you share a little bit about her work and how that ties in with your book? Yeah, I have to say it was, uh, I, 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 finished this manuscript right before critical race theory became the, the hot issue. So I feel very um, on trend with, um, because I, I'm sure you felt this way too, never in a million years would I have suspected that um, Kimberly Crenshaw's work would become the sort of defining moment here in, in the new sort of racial politics of the United States. But um, we know Kimberly Crenshaw because she is really the person who um, gave the language to the specific experience of being, a, being black and being a woman and saying that um, in, in, uh, Crenshaw recognized that you couldn't um, fit all of the experiences and identities and oppressions of black women into the experience of uh, women generally or into blackness generally. There was something very specific and unique about the experience that black women had in, in the workplace, in, um, in the construction of, of, families, of family systems. Um, and that, intersection was became the used the language of intersectionality um and so i i when i wrote this book i really wanted a book that honored the the uh intersectional tradition um that 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 gave voice to all that i have learned from black women from uh queer people who mark those intersections from all of these places where um where we have people really speaking into the specificity of their identity, not just not in these distinctions. And so that's where um, Crenshaw came in and, and wanted to name her right up front as, as one of the people who has influenced me. Oh, well, thank you for bringing her in because she was so influential and just we couldn't have written the book or we would not even have come up with writing the book, um, Intersectional Theology without her work. And, and, and we are so indebted to a lot of the black women, uh, even before Crenshaw and after Patricia Collin Hill, um, just so many of these black women thinkers that helped us kind of rethink how we see the view and how, how we see the world and how we even see Christianity. Um, in the book, you also, I, I just love this part where you were, you said about um, um, divided the world into us and them. Once we divide up the world in this way into friends and enemies, we are destined for binary thinking that leads to intractable conflict. And I just feel my whole kind of writing thing is I'm just so against this binary way of thinking, this dualistic way of thinking. And I thought, oh my goodness, Melissa, you're just right in the same uh, sphere as, as where I am. So can you just say a little bit more because of us and them, because this was very important for your book. So can you just elaborate on that a bit? Yeah, you know, I, one of the, one of the concerns I think that we keep coming back to is when as we're talking about en enemies and maybe these anxieties that we I think here under the surface about what it means to have an enemy is that it means that you recognize that there's somebody other right there's there's um there's a distinction happening here um and I think there's a lot of discomfort about that because we also sense that that's not the full story right and so um 
I don't know that we need to abandon the idea that there are communities of solidarity, right? Like this is, this is actually really important to be able to form, um, communities that are angry about the same thing, right? That, that are able, as Willie Jennings said, to make anger shareable. Um, and, and at the same time, um, that that doesn't mark you off from, from the ability to participate in, in the very action, the very, uh, the, the destruction that you want to, um, that, that, that we continue to re reify that within ourselves as well. Um, and so I really like this idea of, um, that, there's no outside to power, right? It's not that you somehow get it right. And then um, there's, a, there's a sort of a pure victim and a pure oppressor. And these two sides are always at war with one another. There's also art of this kind of looping back um, that requires us to continue to attend to our own sort of participation in the thing that we want to be against, right? And so that also means that we're constantly inviting people into a place of, of redemption that we are on, that's an ongoing experience. We are constantly in the acts of redemption, right? So, so that's something that I felt was important to, to make space for both of those. Okay, well, thank you for that. And then your book, you know, because you're dealing with the enemy, you talk about Black Lives Matter, and then defunding the police. And I think people uh, misunderstand what it means when activists like you are pushing for defunding the police. So can you just clarify and, and share with us what that all means? And how that is tied in with how to have an enemy? <laughs> Um, and this is probably um, a good time for me to lift up that I was part of the writing team for Mennonite Church USA that recently put out a church-based curriculum for people who want to uh, understand the police abolition movement. And so it's a- When will it be out then? It's out already. Oh, it's out already. Okay, so people can go and read that. So where should we go to read that part? Uh, to Mennonite Church USA's website, and it's free. It's at, it's uh, just it's perfect for your fall Sunday school adult oh. education. So, um, so you can dig in there. Okay, wonderful. But, so continue yes. on. Sorry to interrupt. No problem. Um, yeah. So I, you know, I think there's a. You're right that we have all of these sort of perceptions about. Um, what what the language of defund means or abolition means, and and something that I I do wonder um, an important question for us to begin with is um, what is the world that we want, right? What is what is the world that we want to build, and what are the small things that we do that we work towards every day to start building that world, um, and when abolitionists, um, going back to Angela Davis and um, Ruth Wilson Gilbert, all of these um, abolitionists who've been doing this work for decades, when they look, um, as, you know, especially, again, Black women who've been the leaders of this movement, um, when they look at the world that we want, it's a world where it's possible for us to have uh, redemption, reparation, repair without punishment. Um, that we have the possibility of uh, finding a way to address harm without shutting people away, without, and recognizing that that shutting people away in prisons is, is part of a, a system of racism in our country. Um, and so it's, we have both the desire for actual justice, actual repair, um, that doesn't require the state intervention um, from a racialized system that targets people of color, um, but especially black people. Um, and so um, I, I think this sort of, this maybe perhaps popular opinion that we don't care about laws or, you know, we don't care about, you know, people getting hurt. But the real question is what does it actually mean to be safe? What does it actually mean to be whole? What does justice actually look like? And if you ask those questions, they sound a lot like the kind of faith that we profess, right? <laughs> like we're saying, yes. oh, right? Um, 
a perfect love casts out fear because fear has something to do with punishment, right? Like all of this sort of sense of, um, we are trying to be a part of this, the, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, initiating this new way of life and redemption that you are not the worst thing that you have done. Um, that there is a, a possibility for something more. Um, and so for me, the abolition movement has been one of the clearest, examples of um, the gospel at work <laughs> in, um, in, in, in ways that don't necessarily originate in the church. Um, and so I'm really grateful for, for the abolitionists in my life. Oh, thank you for sharing that. There's so much richness in your book. So I'm going to just quote another sentence because I thought this was so powerful, especially to me. Um, you're right. Until we are willing to name, assess, and address power, how we come to church and bodies that bear within them legacies of power brokering, centering, and divestment, our Christian unity is little more than a strategy to maintain the status quo and avoid conflict. And I thought, wow, you just got it so right on here. So what led you to write this and what does it mean for all of us today? If you're in activism and community organizing, we talk a lot about power. Um, that is, there's a, there's a recognition of the way that the world works. You'd have to do power analysis, right? In order to understand who's in charge of things. Um, and I, I got involved in community organizing when I was still a teenager. Um, and, and so that has always been sort of hand in hand for me with my theology. It's been, it's been almost impossible to look at a situation and say, Oh, this, you know, I, I, I can't see the, you know, it's, you, you have to see the power structure in front of you. <laughs> and, and that's, um, and so that began very early on for me that I, I thought about power a lot in the church. And I think there's, this is again, where we, we like to think that the church can be a space that's free from power, or there's a, there's a purity to our system or, um, and that has caused a lot of damage uh, that has caused damage for our accountability of, of pastors, especially around sexual abuse and sexual misconduct. Um, but I, but one of the, one of the places that I wanted to dig into with this book was it also means that people who are at the margins of the, these systems of power uh, in our churches bear the burden of, of that uh unity, bear the burden of unity in a way that those of us who are in the majority position of power do not. Um, so to say, um, you know, we welcome everyone here and, you know, we don't really take a position on this or that. And, um, you know, we, we don't really talk about politics here. Um, there's only one person or one group of people who, who bears the burden of that. Um, it's not the people who, for whom the world this in this country was created for their flourishing, right? Um, it's everybody else who has to sort of figure out how to work around these majority systems. And so being honest about the cost of unity, who bears that cost um, and, and what it means for who we profess to be as people of good news, I think needs to be a question that's where we take much more seriously as a church. Yeah, I think so too. And then that's kind of tied in. You dealt uh, a bit with white supremacy, which I was pleased to see. And then when I was reading over that section, I wish I had this book before I finished off. I have a new, coming, uh, new book coming out, uh, Invisible, where I deal uh, specifically with Asian Americans and how we are made invisible. But that is all tied in with this white supremacy. So I was reading that section. I thought, oh, I wish I had your book or your book was out before um, I was finishing off my book because you kind of write from within. So I thought that was so important for all of us, um, communities of color to read. And, and you write with such clarity. Share with us what it means when you are dealing with white supremacy and how are we to deal with white supremacy in the church and in faith communities? Uh, 
about, um, I wanted to write this chapter um, actually as a, sort of um, in honor of uh, Shanika Walker Barnes, who in her book really says white people need to to deal with this. Like y'all need to like get in there and like figure out what's going on with yourselves. Um, and it's like, yeah, I, you know, this is a person I want to, I want to honor that, that request here in public. Um, and so I, you know, start with one of the descriptions that Dr. Walker Barnes uses, which is this language of possession, that whiteness is a form of, of possession, um, where, I, you know, I think that one of the, the one of the myths, I, I would say one of the demonic myths of whiteness is that somehow we, we control it, right? That, that the quote that you have, uh, she writes was created, whiteness was created as a way of determining who got to partake um, of the benefits of white supremacy. And I thought that just nails it right up. So continue on um, talking about her and white supremacy and whiteness. Yeah, just so that that whole book is so insightful and um, really use that as, as a launching point for my own work and for communal work. And, um, and so this, yeah, that sense of, um, which, which is interesting, the, the fact that we possess whiteness rather than it possessing us is sort of a reflection of, of what whiteness does. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is, um, you know, I thought th- this is where um, Du Bois, his thoughts about this are, are so helpful because they move us beyond sort of the transactional nature that, oh, this is a calculate, this isn't just an economic calculation, right? To that there really are habits and cultures and, um, and I think in, in the Christian, in, in our faith world, we would say, we would use this language of some, like a force outside of us that holds us to this oppression of whiteness um, and holds us captive to it. Um, and it requires like something outside, we you know they require something outside of us, besides just sort of, um, you know, getting up the the gumption to break free of these systems um but to see the embeddedness and and how actually i i do think that we need to also as white people take seriously that this is a form of bondage whiteness is actually a form of bondage and so um you know that Fannie Lou Hamer famously says you know none of us is free until all of us are free um that to be in bondage to whiteness, um, to have our flourishing happen on the backs of our um, fellow human beings, of our brothers and sisters and siblings in, in the church um, is, a, is a destruction um, to, the, to the human community. And it is what keeps this, um, this cycle of oppressed and oppressor going. Um, so to lay down, um, what we, we think that, that, that we've succeeded, right? That we we're getting something out of this. We certainly are, um, but, but what is the cost of this bondage? Thank you so much for sharing that. That's so meaningful for me. And you, you know, you rely on her work. You also rely on Dr. Willie Jennings' work. Um, you wrote, he wrote and you quoted, in this white supremacist infested country called the United States of America requires anger. And then you wrote a large section on anger and you moved to holy anger. So can you say a little bit about anger and how we are to use anger? Where is that? Yeah. How do we use that? Jennings has a, such a thoughtful reflection on this and it's sort of just that Jesus pushes us back from the, from anger becoming destructive, um, but allows us the space to uh, form communities who are angry about the same thing. And that's really our, I think the work of uh, communal discernment is how do we be angry about the things that God is angry about? And uh, so, you know, I, the theme of, the, of, of discernment and having people who can help you um, do this work together is also something that, that I was significant for me um, because so often, when, when these communities of anger form, right, they are the, um, 
like the the communities that that formed in response to the park regime um and these women who came together to support one another and um you know you hear these stories about these prayer meetings, right? And the prayer meeting was actually this, sounds so much like the imprecatory Psalms, right? That um, crying out for God's justice and anger and, and wanting God to remove by whatever means necessary, the, this trauma being inflicted upon these communities. Um, and they actually become living embodiments of um, of resistance, right? That this is that these become the people who find their way to one another, um, and so recognizing that anger can can be destructive if it if it pushes us over that cliff of self destruction, um, but anger um, can also be a, can be clarifying, can help us to, um, as Audrey Lord say, says, like shine a spotlight on the things that we need to be angry about. Um, and maybe also that, you know, when, when we say that we are not, when we hide our anger for one another, it's not that that goes away, right? That's like, it takes a certain kind of honesty and relationship in order to be angry with another person, right? Like, yeah, you, I agree. <laughs> yeah. um, and so, so there is something, there is something about uh, communal, about being able to be angry, um, together, um, and, and kind of figure out what that means. Um, and, and to create the space to kind of figure it out together. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. You know, your book is so important. How to have an enemy, um, published by Herald press. And there's like, I can talk to you all day about it because it's so in depth, as I said earlier, scripture, history, um, all these, uh, various theologians that you rely on. And then, one thing, though, in the book just caught me off guard for a second. And then I thought, you are so right. So the thing that really caught me off guard was you wrote that Mary is the first priest, the first to offer Jesus's body to the world. She nurtures that body, teaches and feeds him from her breast and tells him the story of Israel's enemies, of deliverance from slavery and Egypt too. So I thought that first sentence, Mary is the first priest, that really caught me off guard. And I, and I thought, oh, you are so right <laughs> that, he is, that she is the first priest to offer up the body of Christ to the world. So tell me how you got there and what it really means for the rest of us who are struggling with what it means to be church. How, how do we deal with women in the church? the women that are demonized and called the enemy at times, how do we deal with this? Um, because you draw this beautiful picture and because you caught me off guard, but then I agree with you. So say a bit more about this. Yeah, you know, I, um, I remember the first time I began to think about this is when it's an Ephraim the Syrians hymns on the nativity where uh, he uses a lot of the, this, or, um, if you, if, if our listeners haven't read those, this, this is the perfect thing to read during Advent and Christmas where, um, you know, the, we actually have these images of, um, Mary nursing Jesus and Jesus nursing the world that Mary holds Jesus in her womb and in Jesus womb, the whole world is held. So all of these images that Ephraim sort of pulls out that um, when we sort of reach the sort of end of what the, what the priestly act becomes in the church is to offer Christ to the world. Um, Mary is the first one to do that. <laughs> she, she really becomes the, um, the one who offers the body of Jesus. And I thought about this the other day that I, I was, uh, presiding over, over Eucharistic church and, um, taking this bread and saying these words. And, and I, that image always comes back to me of, of the, the, this, the idea of Mary birthing Jesus and, and, you know, the, the shepherds come in and the, and the Magi eventually show up and she offers, she offers Jesus, um, for worship to all of these visitors. And, 
Um, and so it's always very interesting to me, the idea of sort of a all male priesthood um, when um, as I say those words, I am imagining myself in the place of Mary um, or, or even in the place of those, the women who come to the tomb, who become the first to proclaim, the first preachers, right? The first to preach the good news. Um, and so um, it feels like you almost would have to make a little bit better case for men to be, to be pastors <laughs> at this point. <laughs> But I don't want to restrict anybody's gifts in the pulpit. So if men feel called to the to the pastor, that's fine. White but men, right? If white men feel called, then they can come. Okay, I like that. So thank you for sharing that. And it's just a new image for me to kind of um, ponder on and use even in my classroom. So thank you for that. Um, as we wrap up this podcast, uh, Madame Podcast, I do want to talk about your chapter on undoing family um, and how you know family have been drawn apart, especially during the Trump administration. And, you know, what are we to do when we don't agree? And how do we deal with this whole family business? And, G and, you, and you drew on scripture too. So can you share a little bit about that as we kind of wrap up this Madame podcast? Sure. I um, One of the places I wanted to take seriously that I think we often want to skip over <laughs> Jesus very direct teachings about how the gospel will divide families and it really doesn't pull any punches about this and is very consistent throughout the gospels that this is the direction that that we're going with this good news um I think so for me really culminating in um the last supper where this Passover meal you know, we imagine it's a family celebration. People would return. And instead, Jesus says, we're going to eat this meal together. Uh, and this is sort of the sort of solidification of this. Um, they've already left their families and now it's solidified in this um, family meal. And I think about a lot about how challenging that is for us today um, and one of the, one of the theologians I turned to in this chapter was, um, Esasi Diaz and to, um, uh, Mujerista theology, where we actually see rather than the diminishment of family, the expansion of family. Um, so what does it mean to have your, your neighbor, your church person mean as much to you? be as much family to you um, as your blood kin, right? That, um, and so I really love that image of, um, a, of familia, sort of this, this expansiveness, because I think it doesn't decrease our, our bonds with the, with the people who live in our homes and who form, the, who form our family systems. And at the same time, it changes who we are responsible to, who is responsible to us. Um, what does it mean to have all these other relationships be just as politically meaningful to us? Um, if your um, immigrant um, church member means as much to you as your uncle who, you know, is, is a, wants to see everybody leave the country. Now you have to negotiate that, right? That's, those are both a part, those are both your family members. Um, and I think once we start to think that way, instead of family first, church second, you know, however we want to divide this up, uh, that really shifts the trajectory of, of who we are and who we belong to. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that because, you know, as Christians, we say sometimes, you know, with baptism, you know, water can be thicker than blood. So mm -hmm. thank you for giving that description. I think it's, um, I think we have to reimagine family and how we treat our neighbors. You know, it's not just the one next door, it is all those people that we do care about. So I think your book is so important. I thank you for writing it in the midst of all your busyness. It's really a true gift to the world. And I hope, you know, it's getting, it's going to be released July 20th. I hope everybody goes and pre-orders it. It's How to Have an Enemy, Righteous Anger and the Work of Peace, published by Herald Press. I thank you, uh, Reverend Melissa Flora Bixler, for 
just spending the time with me um, right now to share your wisdom and how you came to write this book, to share about your work with the large community and your activism and your solidarity with the people of color and with um, those who are marginalized. So I just thank you so much for all your ministry of writing and ministry in the church and your activism. Thank you so much. Um, and so thank you for being a guest on my Madang podcast. And I hope you will come back again. Thank you very much. Invisible, published by Fortress Press, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. Show your support and pre-order your copy today. The Buddhist Suu Kyi Foundation is a volunteer-based global organization with missions in charity, medicine, education, and humanist culture. The foundation provides community and social services, national and international disaster relief, medical and charitable assistance, education, environmental protection, and a bone marrow donor registry promoting humanistic values and community volunteerism. Su Chi is currently sending emergency aid to eight Asian countries, India, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal, Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Laos, and Taiwan, providing communities with life-saving medical equipment and supplies to help them overcome the COVID-19 pandemic. To find out more and to donate, please visit our website at www.suchi.us coronavirus. Mandy Ford is an artist and teacher specializing in hope-filled products, including stickers and art prints, digital and printable products, and creative courses to help your soul live a happier life. She is also the founder of Soul Care Creatives Club, a monthly membership club offering creative resources for soul care. Find out more at www.mandyford.co, follow her on her social media at Mandy Ford Art, and visit her shop at Mandy Ford Art Etsy.com. FACE serves as the bridge between the Asian American community and the greater community at large by connecting and creating private and public collaboration, maximizing capacities of faith-based organizations and other community nonprofits, increasing access to resources and funds, and assisting low-income individuals while revitalizing local neighborhoods. We equip faith leaders to be welcomed, influential, and contributing stakeholders by expanding their impact in the greater community. Join us in supporting our work by donating at www.facela.org. For sponsorship inquiries, please contact madangpodcast at gmail.com.